Accutron Watches present. From New York City, this is the Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture with your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece, it's a conversation piece. In New York City alone, you know, there's Lincoln Center, there's MoMA, and there's the High Line, three of our most important projects, all involved some form of preservation or adaptive reuse. The person you heard at the top of the show is today's guest. He's Charles Renfro, partner of the interdisciplinary design studio Diller, Scofidio, and Renfro, which integrates the performing arts, visual arts, and architecture. Charles has worked on large-scale projects abroad and closer to home, including, get this, the redesign of Lincoln Center, the design of Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art, and China's Tianjin Juilliard School. But first up, I'm Bill McCuddy along with Scott Alexander and editor David Graver, and we are here for a brand new episode of The Accutron Show. Stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020. Scott, favorite building in the world? Favorite building of the world, Pompidou Center. Where is that? It's in Paris. It's a I knew that. Museum in Paris, <laughs> uh, and it's it's has the inside on the outside. And it was the fir- I went there when I was about eight years old, and it was the first building where I looked at it and I went, "What is that?" And I was with my parents. And my dad said, "They put the." Outside on the inside it has all the like plumbing and AC and all. It's very industrially oh, outside. I was like, that's that. crazy. That's that's and it called? was the first building that was like, they're doing something really different. With Did this. you go in it to see the outside? <laughs> <laughs> and and well, I, my serious question is, does it have functionality or is it just a piece yeah, of art? Yeah, it's they they put a lot of the industrial pieces of it uh, on the outside and sort of just to kind of expose all this stuff. It's a it's it was the first building that made me th- realize that architecture was a thing. David, you've been everywhere twice. What's your <laughs> What's your favorite building? Maybe Saint-Chapelle in Paris, but here at home, it's definitely the Flatiron Building. I think about mm. the Flatiron Building a lot. I actually have a list in my phone, in my notes app, of my favorite buildings in New York City. Even Grand Central Terminal, seeing it from the outside, walking inside, the experience with that building is unlike any um, I've had with... That's my favorite room. have seen it but don't know what you're talking about. It's the triangular building. The and triangle as soon as you building. look it up, you go, oh, that's the that's what he's talking about. Yeah, it's so iconic. And it's I think a couple of uh, years ago on the on, on the Internet, there was some 1915 footage of people walking around. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. very, That was like hot for a month. And everybody said, look how skinny everybody used to be. Uh, and there's the Flatiron Building in the back. Uh, I, I have to say the Guggenheim is right up there for me. Uh, and we will talk to our guest about what makes good design in cooperation with function and and does function yeah. always follow the form uh, well later you know as i got more into that as, as a became an adult stuff looking into frank lloyd wright's work and his work on actual resonances on houses and how they integrate with landscapes that was another big and thing and he was designs like, all the stuff oh, inside too and they can be dark. I will say right up front, and I know that our guest has worked on uh, a theater that I didn't even know Frank Lloyd Wright did big 
buildings. I thought he was just houses like Falling Water and all the others that are that Joel Silver bought a couple of years ago. <laughs> People actually collect those houses. I think one of the most fascinating things about Charles is not that he is just imagining new properties. He's also reinventing and reimagining historical properties like the Frank Lloyd mm. Wright building, like Lincoln Center, which I lived beside for so many years and just basked in sort of the glory of. It's It takes a lot of skill to cast an iconic place in new dimension. It also seems like an incredible responsibility to be an urban planner. Uh, oh, yeah. You have to play well with others, I assume. Well, or and, dominate them. I mean, or, yeah, look at Robert yeah, Moses, you know. Well, true. And and the Moses play, which just opened recently, it's getting rave reviews with Ray Fines, and it's getting people excited about design and the personalities behind those designs. Right. I, I love that. You mentioned the Grand Central Terminal, David, and that is my favorite room in New York because the, the outside of Grand Central is like kind of heinous a little bit <laughs> but the inside Scary. of it is is wild because it feels like you're outside it's sort of the reverse pompadour yeah, like like you go in there you're like am i outside no i'm inside it's it's there's birds in here and there's, there's a planetarium i mean there's a uh, right whatever there's constellations yeah there's constellations <laughs> above look there's pisces that's me um yeah what yeah. makes a good building for you david Something that sort of subverts reality. I am actually an architectural tourist, and really high on my list is seeing the National Museum of Qatar, which um, Jean Nouvel designed. I have traveled to Chandigarh, India, just because I wanted to see the urban layout of Mies van der Rohe. I will travel just to see the way a building looks in real life. Well, I, and you know, the way that, that chefs became stars, now the architect is becoming kind of a rock star. Frank Geary, right. you know, the buildings that are going up, you have people like Brad Pitt that follow these guys, buy their, I mentioned Joel Silver earlier, but I was half kidding, but he did buy up a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright's houses. I mean, so when you these, feel, you hear a lot of shade names for themselves. about someone like Geary, you know, and I see his buildings and I just go like, thank God somebody is doing something different. Like, it looks like a big dented bean. Like, right. great. Right. Like, let's go. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, like uh, more more square buildings going, bup, 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 bup. no, thank you. I mean, we see that a lot more in Manhattan than most people listening around the country do. But I think the, the, the cities that can have an identity or a brand with something interesting in Los Angeles, it's been those Disney uh, kinds of outbuildings mm -hmm. that are auditoriums and stuff downtown. Stuff that's just a little outside of the box because... <sighs> Sorry. They design boxes, but they have to make them really But it does feel like it really changes. I mean, I've seen this happen. Downtown L.A., it happened over the last 20 years. Like, downtown L.A. is completely transformed and all these big buildings going right. up. And downtown Brooklyn, you know, where, I, where I live, like, Brooklyn 20 years ago, it was like you went into Brooklyn. You're like, I'm off the bridge. It's all completely low rise. Now it's this giant corridor of skyscrapers. How do you feel about the changing Manhattan cityscape in, in 57th Street and Billionaire's Row? <laughs> Billionaires Row, mm, I, have strong, I have strong feelings about <laughs> Billionaires Row, but uh, you know they have more watches than me. So I, that's true. They have a lot of watches. We can only hope they're Accutron. <laughs> the gold edition still available, sixty-six copies. Um, yeah, I, I'm I, I'm a big fan of contemporary when it's done properly. I think it can be done badly, and but I like Sanford White. I like old stuff. I like turn of the century uh, stuff that the turn of nineteen to. 1900, not the recent turn of the century. And I just think, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we have to respect that. We also have to look at the people doing it and try to understand what processes they go through when they do it. That's what we're going to try and do in this interview. We're also going to talk about a lot of charity work that he's done and, Indeed. and work with uh, the LGBTQ community. Right. Uh, all of that uh, when we return with Charles Renfro.
This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time for those who blaze new trails. Charles, welcome to the Accutron Show. I guess my first question for you is, as a young person or even as a child, what was the first thing you either designed or noticed as being good design? Um, I can't say it's exactly good design, but when I noticed design having an impact on people's lives was in Houston, Texas, which was grow where I grew up and which was growing up itself around me in the 70s, in the, in the big oil boom of the 70s. And um, this, the, the city just emerged from a, from a field um, and overnight almost, and it was really thrilling. And there were some good architects involved. Uh, Philip Johnson was there, I.M. Pave, Gordon Bunchap did a building in downtown Houston. Um, not too shabby. So, not too shabby. I mean, it was, you know, it was all commercial work. Um, and a little bit later, I realized that, you know, people like, you know, Mies van der Rohe had paid a visit to town. And then uh, I, you know, I realized there was actually really high end architecture, too. So I think, you know, I have to say that Houston was that was what was what opened my eyes to uh, to design. And that it literally grew up sort of around you, which is fascinating. You're right. It was like a, a, an oil field. And then yeah, suddenly well, it was, you had, it was yeah. a canyon. Yeah. yeah, And it's sort of the sleeping giant of, of design. There's actually great art in that town and, and uh, really interesting stuff where you start poking around Houston. Well, I, I have to say, you know, I'm doing projects in, in both Houston and Dallas. So I, I go back there all the time. And I think Houston is one of the most fascinating cities in America um, because it's so diverse and the art scene is great. The food scene is almost as good as any in uh, in America. So I like it. Yeah, that's the third largest city in the country, I think. Which is people, people is forget. It? Yeah, that, that, fourth. It's fourth. Fourth. Okay, fourth. Yeah, yeah. So that stuns me. It, it's so it's so seldom in that conversation, right? It's always Miami, L.A., New York, yeah. Chicago, and it's got uh, that same wrong. unboundedness of L.A. It just yeah. ranges out. Charles, something that we were discussing at the top of the show actually is. Integral to your career and your professional success is not only imagining new places, but being a steward for existing architecture mm. like the work of Frank sure. Lloyd Wright. Would you talk to us about that? Even Lincoln Center, I mean, an icon of New York City. Well, I think um, our firm has really shifted towards preservation and revitalization, mm. um, partly because of the sustainability uh, impacts that preservation suggest, but I think mostly because in the work that we do, we're interested in, um, in you know, embodying the DNA of places in which we work. And often the best way to do that is to let the existing architecture come back to life, perhaps in a new way, um, and carry the new architecture forward with it. And in New York City alone, you know, there's Lincoln Center, there's MoMA, and there's the High Line, three of our most important projects, all involved some form of preservation or adaptive mm -hmm. reuse. And, um, and in Europe now, we are doing three adaptive reuse, um, well, three preservation projects uh, that all involve some form of commercial building that's being rehabilitated. So it's something we believe in very much. Um, and uh, it's not just about do-gooder 
sustainability issues. It's really about the spirit of a place and having that be maintained through preservation. Do you find when you go in that there's been a lot of damage done in the, in the inter, like let's say in the seventies and eighties where they were coming in and chopping everything up into little cubicles and then sort of losing the essence of the original building. You have to sort of go back and regut it. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the buildings that we we're working on have very strong, you know, backbones and they can, they can withstand quite a bit uh, for instance, the um, uh, the the Place uh, Raoul Dutry in Paris, which is the tall slab building on top of the Montparnasse station, it it takes its um, image from its longness and its fatness. You know, so um, it, you know you could really you could hurl grenades at it, and it would still maintain its kind of character. Um, and it was never a good building on the inside. So we're actually what we're trying to do is save its its exterior exterior character, um, bring it up to date, but give the interior a life it never had. So we're actually bringing it to life in a way, uh, a thing that it never had to begin with. You've also done a lot of work with universities, correct? Yeah. Is that how does that fit in with that sort of coming into a place that has a history and and working within that? Well, every project that we start, we like to interrogate the site, uh, and I mean that in several ways. One is the physical side of, of where a building uh, or an intervention is going, but also there's a site that's more about, um, you know, uh, the program and, you know, the, the, the social economic right. history of a place is also a kind of site. We try to always draw our buildings out of, of their sites even if they are brand new from scratch projects. And so, um, because a campus architecture is, is very, uh, you know, the, often very rich with history. Mm -hmm. A lot of these places we work have uh, buildings that are over 100 years old. There's always a lot to draw on physically in a place's physical history. But there's also a lot to draw on in a place's pedagogical history and ambition. And Aldous right. Brown University is an example of that. We were asked to do a new arts building at Brown, the first of its kind, which was all about cross-disciplinary uh, collaboration. And Brown was the very first undergraduate university that let students define their own majors, and you may know this. Uh, very, very progressive. Uh, and, um, and so we wanted to make a building which suggested infinite spatial possibility, and it looked mm. like infinite spatial possibility, and um, it actually allowed infinite spatial possibility. So it was both an image and a facilitator, a tool. And that idea of, of every space being connected to every other space uh, is something that we wouldn't have come up with for every other university. That was a mm. Brown University-specific idea, and it had to do with their history of you know, sort of transparency and letting students pick whatever, wherever they wanted to go. It was completely an open field. Um, and so um, we like to think that all of our academic work is grounded in a really deep understanding of a place and of a site. Mm -hmm. And that more smart people are coming out of there as a result of it. <laughs> Let's hope so, or at least more exposed people. You, um, you mentioned the High Line earlier, and I know you're working on a park in Moscow beside the Kremlin. I'm wondering if you can tell me how you apply all of your values and the values of your firm to outdoor spaces? 
Sure. Um, you're talking about Zaria Idea Park, which actually has been open now for five years. It opened in 2017. And, um, you know, what an amazing experience to be working next door to the Kremlin, literally on Red Square. Whoa. And so when we, it was a wonderfully organized international competition. There were uh, five finalists, all incredibly good architects and landscape architects um, with a very, uh, very thoughtful um, review process. So there was no, no nefarious activity going on whatsoever. But what we wanted to do in that park is, first and foremost, open it up to everyone all the time without any scripted behavior. So we got rid of the fence. We made a whole bunch of different entry points. We made Moscow agree to keep the the project the, the park open 24-7. I'm not sure if they've made good on that, but that was the condition of one of our design proposals. Um, and we developed a paving uh, technique that is a sort of akin to what we did at the High Line, which w would allow for an informal kind of meandering through a green space, and that the green space and that the gray space of the concrete would kind of coexist and push and pull on one another, and that people, as they occupy the space, could also uh, walk, walk off the, the gray into the green and, and vice versa in a very unscripted way. So with, the, with Highline and with Zariadie, our goal was to um, give people a kind of giddy, unfettered uh, access to, to green in the middle of these cities that are very, very dense and have lots and lots of history. Um, famously, uh, the summer after Zariadie opened, a, many, a ser series of articles came out about how we had provided the perfect playground for frisky Muscovites. Um, and, <laughs> Congratulations. And, uh, I know. And so and I, I, I said to my partners after that, I said, well, we've won. We don't even need a critic to take a look at this. The public has voted and they voted <laughs> a successful and, and, and liberating open space. And so in the middle of Moscow, that's something we're very proud of. It's a red, red light district. <laughs> hey, listen, you made a joke about the nefarious thing, but I, it, there must be challenges building all around the world. No place more uh, I would imagine difficult than Russia, or was was it easy to get contractors to communicate with you in in a in a space like that? It's fascinating. What happened in, in Moscow is that you know we won the competition. We went through a six month phase where we refined the design, and then we were almost pushed out the door, much to our you know surprise, and to a point where we didn't know if we should stay involved in the in the project. But about a year later, they rang us up again and they said, okay, we're ready for you to come back in. And we said, oh, well, what happened? You know, what um, said, well, we've been building the park. And I, we said, well, how have you been doing that? You don't have documents to build the park. Well, come on over and we'll show you what we did. We so don't we get need there. We, we get there and sure enough, half the park is made and it looks like what we drew. And we go to this giant We steal trailer, from you. This giant trailer and they had constructed brick by brick, essentially, a humongous model of the whole park, big enough that you, you know, it was probably 30 feet by 40 feet, that every single contractor would be brought into the room uh, from the landscapers to the, to the concrete people to the electric people. They'd put the electric lights on the model and they worked. And they would be brought into the room and they would say, 
Dasvidanya. You know, look, look, look uh, here's what you do. Um, and, um, and, and <laughs> make that. Uh, make <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, and, and so the contractors built from a model. They didn't build from drawings. And they were, they were so excited about working on what they knew would be a groundbreaking project that they, they, were, they just did everything they could to make it be uh, honest to our designs. And we didn't do, I mean, there were some construction documents made. I'm, I'm, I'm taking a little liberty with the storytelling. But, but in essence, the, the people learned uh, how to take pride in the model because the city took pride in, in making the park and it just trickled down. And it, mm. it was a kind of wonderful experience in the end. It seems like you've mentioned a few different times the ways that architecture and good design can um, affect the way that people feel when they inhabit it. Um, Is that something – and then uh, coupling that with there seems to be such a preponderance of bad architecture and bad design. I'm wondering if you feel like this is a sort of mission – can we save the world through architecture basically is what I'm asking. Well, you look, I'm not going to give myself and my profession, um, you know, all the heavy lifting of trying to save the world, because honestly, we can do what we can <laughs> a lot do. To save. Yeah. But but I, I would look to, you know, rulers in other countries that are being elected or diselected, um, unelected uh, as having a greater impact. Mm-hmm. However, I do think design can make us better human beings. And I think design can make us. Um, more empathetic, good design and public design can make us more empathetic, more respectful, more caring, more communicative, um, more loving, actually, um, and maybe more demonstrative. And, and I'll just talk about the High Line as one example of this. When we, After we won the High Line with our design, which was really not much more than coming up with a tapered concrete plank that let the green grow through, I mentioned that before, um, it, that was really about all the design we did. Pete Udolf came in and sampled. He was he's our, our horticulturist. Sampled all of the of all the weeds that were growing in the line before the park was started. Uh, we started construction on the park, and essentially, he brought back all these weeds that had already been growing in the park. And but he did did it so artfully that people thought it was the most magnificent and and planned, you know, English garden with flowers from imported from here and there India all the all the colonial conquests of, of Great Britain not at all. These 80% <laughs> of the planting came from uh, the line itself and they were weeds that had blown up on there and had naturally taken root. And then so wow. so, so basically we, we tricked people, and they were like, wow, this is the most beautiful planting. Then the other thing we did was we said, listen, we want people to see the city around them. We want the rails on our stairs to be glass. We want to open things up, and we want our lighting levels to be very, very low, you know, three feet or less, so that people at nighttime can see out from the line and witness New York City. Because the line, in my opinion, is a, um, a, a kind of a viewing device uh, for the city. The, uh, at, at first, the city of New York, who we had to work with, because this was this is a New York City park, 
said, oh, no, if you don't put lights up in the air and wash the whole thing with 100-foot candles of light at all times, and if you put glass on the line, they will just come and break it and vandalize it. And, and then, you know, without the light, the people get raped, and then they'll get cut on the broken glass, and it'll just be a disaster in the way you look at it. <laughs> and so, so eventually, we convinced them to let us try the low lighting levels and the glass rails, um, and nothing has happened. In fact, I believe that people, through that respect that they've been given as the public, that they respect mm -hmm. the, the space and the design so much more. And then, by extension, I think, this is a supposition, that they respect each other more, too. So that's how I will say you lowered the light and you, you lower the light and raise the bar. We are talking to uh, Charles Renfro. <laughs> he is in a much nicer office than we are. Uh, and we're going to take a break. Do. When we come back, we have a few more questions. And uh, please don't go away. This is the Accutron Show. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the Legacy Collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future. We're back talking to Charles Renfro. He is a world-class, I mean, all over the world. Soon, maybe, what do you think, Charles? Soon Pluto, uh, Mars, some uh, some some stuff up <laughs> Off there. Off planet. Uh, well, I, I, I have no interest in working in places without gravity, frankly, because I've worked too hard to figure out how gravity works to now have it go away. That is the perfect prompt for actually my next question. Have you been approached to build in the metaverse? And if an opportunity came, would you do so? Ah. Uh, I, yes, I've been approached uh, on several occasions by several different people for several different angles. And I'll, I'll go back to what I just said, which is, you know, I've spent a lifetime um, working to defeat gravity. Um, and in so doing, have made architecture be magical. Because gravity is something we all understand. And when you see a building or a project or a, an event that is um, uh, that defies gravity in some way. You instinctively, instinctively realize that there's you're looking at something special. In the metaverse, um, you know the, the the notion of gravity disappears, and for me, that really throws the whole design challenge up in the air. Um, Literally, I, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not a place that we're going to all be working at some point. I suppose we will. Uh, but maybe that's going to be after our bodies disappear, too. <laughs> but see, that surprises me because it would seem to me that from a conceptual standpoint, the metaverse would let you wander around in something that you would design and see it in that world before you actually built it, much like, the, much like your comrade friends did before uh, they built yeah. their park. Well, I, I will say that we use all the modeling tools uh, that are available to everyone these days. And we do animations where people walk through the site and we show those to our clients. Absolutely, for sure. But they're not ends in themselves. They are means to an end. The, the, the tools that we use that are, that are modeling tools that we show our, our projects off to our clients before we build them for them are um, means to an end. They're not an end in and of themselves. Um, and so we build gravity into those um, those programs. I, I do think there's an interesting 
challenge and opportunity to making space in a metaverse but using or, or, or losing, I should say, the gravity and, and, and wonder and, and trying to figure out what that might mean for um, being in, in space together. Or applying gravity in different ways. You know, you can walk to this wall and then walk up the wall and then walk across the ceiling. Uh, like, correct, correct, correct. Yes, but good design has an anchor, doesn't it? Good design has a, a sense of there's the foundation here and this is what this is built on. And I guess that that would maybe be lost. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, yes, I, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, our senses are, are, are grounded in physics and, you know, and, and you, know, sm- you know, all the things around us, touch, smell, hearing, um, you know, um, and of course, gravity and all those things that, that push and pull at our bodies. Those are the things that we have, the tools that we inherently have to understand the world around us. And when those things go away, I fear that our understanding of the world might go away too. Oh, and be reformulated, probably. It's just one more reason to say, no thank you to the metaverse, <laughs> to, my, to my opinion. Uh, and I'm the, I'm the techie guy. Uh, I have a question for you. It's, I've heard it said before that uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Um, your firm does a lot of interdisciplinary projects to do with the performing arts. and arch- How do you see those things sort of like crossing over and melding with each other? Well, all of our projects, our built projects, our architecture projects are in some way a realization of a theatrical act. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there's a reveal, there's a, there's a you know, a, a discovery. Um, you know, architecture is not inert, it's a telling a story also, and you're seeing it over time, much like you would be seeing a play or a, a dance piece in a theater unfold over time with its set of reveals. We like to think of our architecture in a similar way. It's just that the user is mobile, and uh, and instead of the uh, the user or the audience being uh, seated in one location, mm-hmm. um, and if you if you know about our Mao um, Long Opera that we did down the High Line. Uh, with a thousand singers ranging in age from eight to eighty, I cried the um, whole time. I cried the you whole cried time. The whole time. I cried the whole time. It was so powerful. Well, okay, so you understand what I'm talking about. So we flipped everything on its head, and we sort of made, we turned the High Line, the architecture of the High Line, into a theater. The whole thing, and the performers were all stationary, and as the visitor, as the viewer. You walk the line at your own speed, with yourself, with each of the singers. You could engage each and every singer individually, right up in their face, or you could step back and let them sing to you en masse. It was a really spectacular and wonderful uh, project that I think serves as a link between our design and performance. Before I step away, I wanted to be sure to um, ask this. Charles, I've been an admirer of your work for a long time, but the way I kind of got to know you is through BAFO, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what that is and what you're trying to do there. Sure. So BAFO is an artist residency that takes place during the summers in Fire Island Pines. The Fire Island is a little 52-mile stretch of sand that is on the southern edge of Long Island, not quite to the Hamptons. Um, And the Pines is predominantly a, a gay male haven sort of ghetto, some might call it, but sort of a respite, a a kind of place of um, uh, frivolity and and lust and under the sun. 
Um, but BAFO is an organization which um, saw kind of a couple opportunities. Um, one, what a wonderful place to have an artist residency. So you go out there for two weeks, you produce work for two weeks, you have a show after two weeks. And, um, and in this beautiful, idyllic place with no cars, what, what a great thing. So it was started partly, simply, as a response to this gorgeous, idyllic landscape and the opportunities that afford, would afford to artists. Um, but secondarily, and, the, and probably the most exciting thing that's happened with BAFO is um, the, the program started to identify artists of color, uh, gender-fluid artists, trans artists, um, people that are in different socioeconomic classes, all, all sort of kind of being part of an extended family, sort of the extended queer family of, of Fire Island. So not outliers, not people that come in and invade the, the, the community and turn it upside down, but, some, but people that are, should actually be there. And so what Bafo has come to represent over the past few years is, um, you know, uh, an organization whose mission is to bring, um, you know, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion to a place which has so, so historically been about being a wealthy and white cisgen man. Um, and, and it's doing it in a beautiful way. It's not hitting people over the head with it. It's simply presenting these artists and their artworks. And, and most of the time, the art is so reaffirming about the community that people just think, wow, this is fantastic. Why didn't this happen sooner? That's well, congratulations involved. on that. Thank you. It's, Thank it's, you. It's Thank good you. work. And uh, I, I wanted, we talked about at the top of the show, uh, another project that you made uh, mention of briefly, and that's, I didn't know Frank Lloyd Wright did anything but houses. And mm -hmm. uh, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't aware of uh, the, the theater that, he's do, that he did. Can you describe that to us and what the special requirements of, of restoring uh, a Frank Lloyd Wright building are when they, they have their own covenants and, and uh, gatekeepers and, and uh, yeah. a, a panel, right, that has to be in charge of seeing everything that gets done? Yeah, I mean, um, just just I, I'm sure you've been to the Guggenheim in New York City, um, sure. which is uh, which is a, a museum building. So the Guggenheim and the Kalita Humphreys Theater were built at exactly the same time, wow. and they were both not finished when Frank Lloyd Wright died, but they were close to both close to being finished. But they share something, um, and in the, the Guggenheim also has a, a theater space in its basement. It's round. It's very awkward, but very beautiful, actually. And the Kalita Humphreys uh, used a little bit of that logic in, in its uh, theater space. It's, it's a, a round stage. Half of it's in the audience. Half of it's back behind the, the proscenium arch. There really isn't a proscenium arch. Franklin Wright was a big thinker, and when he built this theater, he told the director of the Dallas Theater Center, this is what you need to do and don't question it. <laughs> and so he made the theater, which they were already challenged by um, on, in opening season. And, um, and so there were a lot of modifications made to the theater over the years, lots and lots. So the first thing that we're going to do is bring it back to Franklin Wright's vision, um, essentially restore the, the, the building to what it had been with one or two changes that make it usable, more usable than it was when it opened, but it will not be perceptible to the naked eye. And then we're building two new theaters that take a little bit of the burden off of the old theater to do everything. So we're essentially 
letting it be its art historic architectural historical piece and we're going to do the, the rest of the the stuff that needs to you know have all these other demands uh, in other theaters but yes there is a there's a there's a there we have a preservation architect who's fantastic he's based in chicago where frank, frank lloyd wright started his career um, and uh, there's there's preservation board Dallas. That, you know, we, lots of things to do, and we're at the very beginning of that project. So you'll be hearing about it over the years. We're on a mission too to meet interesting people, hear about what they do, and how they're impacting the rest of the world. And Charles Renfro has been our guest today on the Accutron Show. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Thank, thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch and subscribe to our podcast. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time.